following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Sean Farrell. I'm the college pastor here at Faith Bible Church. also have the privilege of serving as one of the elders. And I'd like to start this morning's message by asking you, what is your favorite restaurant? Calhoun's Barbecue, which makes incredible barbecue right down the street, open seven days a week. Right down the street there, Old Town Marietta, go check them out, amazing. Outside of Calhoun's. Uh, And we, we would need to narrow this down, right, because there's different levels of food, cost, styles, even geographies. Some things taste better in different places, like when you're in Hawaii, like you gotta have that or some other thing that's a memory. Um, but let's narrow it down a little bit. What if we looked at just fast food? Just fast food, favorite restaurant? Yeah. Okay, so I've narrowed this one down in my own life at, with much personal experiment, uh, experience and, and what would you call uh, research and experimentation. My answer is not a single location but a single meal. So humor me, I would have a double-double with grilled onions from In-N-Out. Okay, there you go. I would have the largest french fry that they make from McDonald's. I would have a, the biggest lemonade that's provided from Chick-fil-A, and then I would have an Oreo cookie milkshake from Jack in the Box. <laughs> there it is. I think it's perfect. What's the worst fast food restaurant? I, I think it is Arby's. I'm sorry if you like Arby's. <laughs> I, think it's, I think that's true. Their slogan's even worse than their food. We have the meats. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Some marketing person should be fired. Okay, well, what are your thoughts on all-you-can-eat buffets? A restaurant where you pay one fee to get through the door, and then there are no rules. You can do whatever you want, eat whatever you want. Uh, This is a $7 billion annual industry in the United States. In this category, you have the Golden Corral. You have Soup Plantation. May they rest in peace. Yes. You have Sushi One and the crowd favorite, Sizzler, right? Well, comedian Jerry Seinfeld comically muses that people do not do well in an unsupervised eating environment. I think that's true. The buffet is an edible outworking of the emotional problems that we have as individuals. You walk around that restaurant holding your plate overflowing with food groups that were never meant to be together. Some violation of the Old Testament law is there, I'm sure of it. There's one guy who's walking around with the salad and his ice cream right next to it. Somebody else is there with their spare ribs, yogurt parfait, fried chicken legs, some type of uh, shrimp cocktail, those little tiny baby corn on the cobs. What, I don't know where you find those or how you make those. Um, there's always that some form of jello right on that plate too, and then topped off with four cookies off to the side. It's like somebody walking up to you with this plate full of food going, yeah, this is what I'm dealing with right now, right? This is the dysfunction of my life. You walk around looking at what others have on their plates and you realize there are some strange people in the room. And uh, then you look at your own plate and you realize, well, my plate's pretty weird also. I haven't done much better. As silly as all of that is, the dysfunction of our selection at a buffet pales in comparison to the dysfunction that we experience in our personal relationships with other people. You and I live in a world that's filled with broken relationships. 
Each of us has experienced pain and heartache at the hands of others, and each of us has um, been responsible for producing pain and heartache in others. That's because we bring our own insecurities, our own selfishness and sin into our relationships, and it often leads to disagreements, arguments, fights, and sometimes all-out wars with those that you love most. And if your home is a constant war zone filled with yelling and fighting and sleeping in separate bedrooms and staying together just for the kids, then you are keenly aware of those struggles. But not every relationship gets to that level. Every relationship we value comes with some form of dysfunction and even of pain. And the question we want to continue answering this morning is how are we to deal with broken relationships in our lives? If I am the offending party, if I am the offended party, how am I to respond in a way that honors Jesus Christ? If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Philemon, that little tiny postcard epistle tucked away in your New Testament, and we're currently walking through a short series on these postcard epistles here at FBC. Nigel did 2 John, Pat Levis did 3 John. Next week, we're going to see the book of... Jude from John Plesnick, and then in two weeks, Josh Petrus is with us for a short book, Old Testament, the book of Ruth. Phenomenal. It's going to be great. But this morning, we're in the middle of a two-part series on the book of Philemon, and here in this little tiny letter, we get to look over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul as he helps to mend the broken relationship of two of his friends, Philemon and Onesimus. Now, last week, we spent time meeting each of these men, and I put their names at the top of your outlines just so you can maybe jot down a couple notes about who they are so you can refer back, like, which one is the slave, which one's the slave, I can't remember. Um, So here's the little summary. Paul is the author of the letter. We know that he is an old man, he is a prisoner, and he loves both Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon is the recipient of the letter. He was a wealthy man who was saved under Paul's ministry, and the church in Colossae meets in his house. Onesimus, or as one of my high schoolers used to call him, Joey Bruno was his name years and years ago, One Simus. One Simus is a slave owned by Philemon. Onesimus stole, deserted his master, and headed to Rome some 1,000 miles away where he and the providence of God ran straight into Paul. He was converted and became like a son to Paul, serving him in ministry. And now Paul is sending him back to ask for forgiveness and to reconcile with the man that he wronged. And this most tender letter, written with extreme care, is Paul's best effort to help prepare Philemon to accept Onesimus back. And so there's a series of questions that come from this. Should Philemon accept him back? What will be the punishment um, that, that would ensue? And what will be the terms of this master-slave relationship going forward? Can a relationship like this be mended? And certainly that leads into our lives. Oh, I would ask, what about you? Can you forgive? What will be the punishment for those who have offended you that are seeking forgiveness? Can your broken relationships be mended? And how can all of this happen? The answer is, is that it only happens by the grace of God. True healing and forgiveness only happens when God transforms your heart and from the inside out begins to change you. 
to say in a simple sentence, grace changes everything. The life that you live in Christ is lived as a response to what God has done for you because he loved you, because he has forgiven you. And so out of a response of gratitude and love for him, you seek to love and to forgive others. God has to work in your heart to help you to let go of the offense, to let go of the hurt, and to seek in the power of the Spirit to be made right with that person who has hurt you. And again, how does this happen? It's only through His grace and only by His power. Now, we're going to walk through this little book, and I want to show this to you. I want to show you that grace changes everything. And if you remember from last week, we looked at just the first point in our outline, and I I wrote it out there for you in your outlines, grace transforms your life. This was in verses 4 through 7. We saw that Philemon's life had been radically altered since his conversion, so much so that this man now has the entire church meeting in his house. And verse 7 says that he was regularly refreshing the saints. But the hallmarks of his life and the hallmarks of any believer that's been transformed by God are faith and love. In verse 7, or excuse me, in verse 5, we see that he was a man that had faith in Christ. He was a man that had love for the saints. He trusted God fully and he loved others selflessly. And his life was different. It was manifestly different. And so in Philemon's life, grace had changed everything. Now, before we move to point number two, I'd like to just read the text together um, so we get an understanding, get back into the flow of what's going on. So let's, let's start in verse one. It says there, Paul, he's our author, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord 
refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Point number two in our outlines, grace makes no demands. Grace makes no demands. Not only does grace transform your life, but grace makes no demands. Let's pick this up in verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the age and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the tone that Paul establishes. I could order you, he says. Like a general in war, I could give you some form of a command, some form of an edict. I could give you an imperative. You will do this. I can force your hand. I have apostolic authority. I wrote half the New Testament. I am, after all, your father in the faith. And as a dad, I could tell you what to do. But instead, it's almost as if Paul's voice goes down to a whisper. Verse 9 He comes and he says, rather, I appeal to you. I ask earnestly. I want to plead with you. I want to implore you. And what is his ask? Look down at verse 17, the very heart of this letter. He says, if we are partners, accept him as you would me. What's Paul's ask? I want to see the two of you restored. And so verse 9, look at your Bibles. He says, I appeal. Verse 10, look at your Bibles, he says, I appeal. And why does he make this appeal? Why does he go this direction? Well, for one, he loves Onesimus. In verse 10, he calls him his son. In verse 12, he says, sending him is like sending my very heart, like cutting off my right hand. And while he was useless in verse 11, he has become incredibly useful to Paul. And so in verse 13, he's personally ministering to him. And Paul says in verse 9, a lot of verses, isn't it? That he appeals, look down really quick at these three words, for love's sake. He appeals for love's sake because he loves this man. But but I want to illustrate and bring this maybe into our world a little bit. Uh, There's a young man that I used to work with um, at at one of the companies I'm with that that, uh, dealt with everybody the same way. Uh, He dealt with our best customer and our worst customer, our best employee, our worst employee, the same way. He was rigid He was unyielding, and he was stiff in his demeanor. And as a result, as you can imagine, we often had issues. Uh, And and so in an effort to help him, I sat him down one day, and I said, I I want you to picture a series of hammers, okay? On on the one side, we've got this little tiny hammer, um, like a tack hammer. You know what that is? It's like if you're in your house and you're going to put up the picture with those little tiny nails, and you have the big hammer, and sometimes you go right through the wall. So you get the little tiny tack hammer out to put that in. And then there's a, like a regular size hammer, a couple of those, a smaller one, a bigger one. Then you've got like a mallet, right, like a big with a metal end on it. And then over here, you've got the 10-pound sledgehammer. It's long. It's got a massive 10-pound head. This thing is there to do some serious damage. And so I asked him, which of these hammers, um, uh, which of these hammers do you use when you deal with people? And he stopped and he thought and then he smiled 
and then he goes, the sledgehammer. And I asked him, does every situation require a sledgehammer? And he got the point. I think the same is true with Philemon, and I think the same is true with us. Philemon did not need a sledgehammer. He did not need Paul and his apostolic authority to weigh in in some kind of an edict to be obeyed. He didn't even need the strong exhortation of a rather large mallet. Paul, the wise and elderly sage, comes with the little tiny tack hammer. Why? Why? Because grace makes no demands. Because Paul knew that his heart had been transformed by the grace of God, that Philemon was a different man, that his life was different, and therefore he's already inclined to do what is right. He doesn't need somebody banging down on him. He needs somebody just to point him in the right direction. And so Paul doesn't throw down a list of do's and don'ts, doesn't try to force a response based on guilt or some external expectation. That, my friends, is religion. Religion makes demands. Religion obligates. Religion is performance-based, and religion damns. Christianity is not like that. It is not a list of rules of do's and don'ts and obligations to keep. Yes, we've been given the commands of God, but 1 John 5.3 says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, I love this phrase, his commandments are not burdensome. Paul says it differently in Romans 6.17. He says that you became obedient from the heart. Why? Because grace changes everything. It changes the heart and the disposition of the individual so that what comes out is completely different. Our compulsion is not from others telling us what to do. It's from the Holy Spirit within us. It's not an effort to earn God's favor, but rather a response to his good favor that's already in our lives. It is not the fear of punishment, but it is love and adoration for him that drive us onward. We give ourselves to him because he gave himself for us. We love others because he loved us, and we forgive others because he forgave us. And so Paul doesn't come wielding the sledgehammer. He knew what was in Philemon's heart. He had witnessed his life. He had seen it transformed by the grace of God. And so instead, he comes with a little tiny tack hammer, and he comes with this loving appeal. And he appeals, hey, man, I I think you need to know this. I think there's something in your life you need to address. Look down at verse 14. Paul says, "I, I wanted to keep Onesimus with me, but without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. When God saves you, his grace changes everything. And you no longer live out of obligation or duty, but your life is a response of gratitude and love from a heart that has been transformed. It comes out of your own free will. Some of you are harboring resentment, bitterness, anger, all culminating in unforgiveness. And this morning, God is making his appeal. It is gentle, it is soft, and it comes from a heart of love. He reminds you that you are no longer under wrath, but under grace. And here is his appeal. Let go of the offense. Stop holding on to the grievance and forgive the offending party. In Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We forgive the way he forgave. And I just want to make the point that while God comes today with that still small voice, he will use other means if necessary. He knows exactly which hammer you need. And he will continue to ratchet up the hammers until he has your attention. Make no mistake, if you are one of his children, God will work to get your attention. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God knows what you need. And he might be today just tacking away at your heart, but things will happen in your life in the discipline of God. If you harbor sin, God will reprove you. Now, just a word to parents. You can force your children into conformity. You can demand their compliance and guilt them into behaving. But in the end, that form of parenting leads only to trouble. Yes, when they're young, it is yes, mom. It is yes, dad. That is plain and simple. But as they get into their teenage years and they're headed towards independence and they manifest a will of their own, be wary of that tight-fisted religious-based approach forcing external controls on your children, manipulating their behavior, uh, trying to get them into that perfect Christian box so that everybody will look around and say, what kind of perfect family you have. You can only do that for so long because once you remove the restraints, which typically happens when they're out of your house, they will live out what's in their hearts. And you must train and prepare them for that day. Parenting is a lot like riding a bike or helping a child learn how to ride a bike. For a while, you hold the seat, right? They need encouragement. They, they need support. They need to be steered in the right direction. But at some point, parents, you have to take your hand off of the seat and let them ride on their own. And if you've, if you've hovered too much and protected everything and corralled them too, too carefully, they will immediately fall over or veer off the path down their own pathway. So beware of that. A word to leaders and disciplers. It's not your role to dictate the actions of your people. 1 Peter 5 tells us not to lord it over those allotted to our charge, not to force compliance. You are not the Holy Spirit. And that group of men or women or boys and girls that you meet with, they're not your guys. They're not your girls. They belong to the chief shepherd who has put you in a spot to help shepherd and help them as they grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Too many churches are overbearing and controlling. Too many leaders, I should say, try to force external conformity on their people. Dress this way, talk that way, act this way, read this book, do these things. And there is a time, Hebrews 13, 17 says, where you're to obey your leaders. You're in such a state of sin that when they tell you to do something, you are to do it. But in general, we want to be soft and open-handed, right? Uh, because we don't want people hiding their problems, we don't want people walking in here thinking, I got to look just perfect in order to be accepted at this church. No, we're all broken people with broken relationships. We don't, and we don't need to force Christians how to act. All we need to do is point them in the right direction because if the grace of God is in your heart and Christ is in you, he will manifest himself out in how you live. Grace does not impose. It does not make demands. It just points in the right direction. And oftentimes we just need a little reminder one author said, you don't always have to chop with the sword of truth. You can point with it too. 
and we come with that hammer and we pound away. You will, you won't stop. And in actuality, we just need to remind people the grace of God is in your life. Therefore, go live from what's in your heart. Grace makes no demands. Grace makes no demands. Point number three. Grace sees God's plan in your difficulty. Grace sees God's plan in your difficulty. And this is where God's sovereignty enters the equation. If you are experiencing uh, some kind of difficulty in a relationship or you've been hurt in the past, then there is a point where you begin to wonder, where is God in this? The pain is too great. The wound is too deep. Why is he allowing this? Why won't he rescue me from this pain? And you never get very far into a trial before some well-meaning friend or counselor tells you God's in control. They slap the sovereignty sticker on the back of your car, God's got this taken care of. This is all happening for a reason, right? You need to realize that. No doubt they'll direct you to Romans 8.28, which says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And I'm not meaning to diminish this verse. This is the bedrock truth that we stand on, the sovereign plan of God in our life, that everything that's happening from start to finish in our life is for his good purpose in our lives. But we often don't know what that good is, do we? It says there, we know that he's causing these things to work together for good. I don't always know in the middle of a trial. I'm like a little mouse running around the maze. I can't find the end. I don't know what's going on. It's a difficult, and so we get discouraged. Um, like Job, he's right in the middle of this trial, sitting in boils and ashes, scraping them off, lost everything. He doesn't know what's going on in that story. The debate's happening in heaven. God has a plan. We don't always know where it's going. And so we can lose hope and get discouraged. So watch what Paul does in verse 15. I love how he inserts the providential sovereignty of God into a very delicate relational situation. Let me show this to you. 15 says, Paul says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul doesn't insert a theological lesson on sovereignty. Instead, he uses the word Perhaps. Paul is speculating. Philemon, I don't know why. I don't know why Onesimus left. I don't know why he stole from you. I don't know why he embarrassed you in front of the entire community. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know why God allowed you to go through that pain. I can't say exactly why all this happened. The verb in verse 15, you see that word separated? It's in the passive voice. That means that the subject is being acted on by another. Now watch this. There is no subject in here. He was separated from you for a while. Uh, Most commentators call this the divine passive. That is to say the slave Onesimus was taken from you by God for his greater purposes. Perhaps, Paul says in a very careful way, the reason that he stole from you, betrayed you, ran from you, went all the way to Rome was so that God would save him. Verse 15, so that you would have him back forever as a brother. There are no wasted steps in God's economy. Nothing happens outside of his perfect plan. But because we can't see the end result, we're tempted often to question the steps along the way, aren't we? We know that it's all for good. We don't always know how or why. 
If I said it a different way, I don't know why she left you. And I don't know why he cheated on you. And I can't tell you why the darkness will not lift on your trial. The best I can do is to point you back to the character of an unchanging and sovereign God who is perfectly wise and infinitely loving. We don't always know. But Charles Spurgeon said it this way, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I like that. Here Paul is saying, perhaps, Philemon, all this happened in your life for a greater purpose. In the providence of God, he used your pain to effect a forever change in Onesimus so that you would have him back as a brother in Christ. And while we know that God causes all things to work together for our good, we don't know how each step comes together to accomplish that, person, that purpose, and so we must trust him. Maybe, parents, your rebellious child needs to hit rock bottom. Perhaps God will use less than savory circumstances to bring them back to him. Maybe your marriage has taken a turn for the worst. Perhaps God will use your pain and even the sin involved to establish his perfect plan in your life. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph, speaking to his brother, says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Grace sees God's plan in your difficulty. Number four. Number four, grace unites. Grace unites. I want to insert you back into the story here for a moment. As Onesimus re-enters the city of Colossae, he's been gone for a long time. People certainly would have recognized him. As he walked down that main street, hushed conversations would have taken place. Isn't that Onesimus, Philemon's slave? Oh, yeah, the one that ran away. He took the horse, he stole the money, and he bolted. I think that is him. What in the world is he doing back here? I would imagine those conversations would turn to debate as soon as Onesimus disappeared into Philemon's house and the door closed behind him. Some would have said it's simple, right? Uh, a slave runs away, a slave is punished, right? Because everybody's asking, what is Philemon going to do? He ran away, guess what? He's going to get punished. The question is just how severe Philemon's going to be. What kind of mood is he in? Another would say Philemon will need to set an example with Onesimus so that nothing like this ever happens again with any of his other slaves. Another would say he returns only to forfeit his life. What a fool. A few minutes later, someone comes running out the front door, yells out, Philemon's calling for a special gathering of the church. It doesn't take long before everybody's pulled together, and in the presence of his wife and son, Philemon reads Paul's letter in front of the entire congregation with Onesimus standing right next to him. I wonder what the response was when he read verse 16. Look at it there. That you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is a radical statement one that would have sent reverberations to that little community. You know why? Because it defies human nature. Human nature says, if you hurt me, I will hurt you back. You punch me, I'm going to punch you harder, right? You stab me, I'm going to shoot you. Whatever it is, we always ratchet things up. 
This also flies in the face of the culture of the time. He's a slave, you're the master. It goes against everything that is natural and normal. Receive him back as a brother? Really? Why? Because, my friends, grace changes everything. Because both of these men are now Christians. Because their lives have been transformed by the grace of God and everything has changed. We just listened to Elena talk, tell her testimony. Her life is completely transformed by the grace of God. She's a different person. The old self full of unforgiving hatred has died and the new man made in the image of Christ has the capacity to love and forgive and be at peace with others. Paul is saying, in effect, your relationship with Onesimus will no longer be based on its legal status master to slave. It will now be based on your spiritual relationship. These men stand as equals, as brothers, as beloved brothers, the text says, because of what Christ has done. Look at Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, two opposite sides of the, of the, uh, uh, the national spectrum. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. At the foot of the cross, there is no class distinction. As these men worship their Savior, they stand on level ground. In Ephesians 2.13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Grace unites. It takes those things that are complete opposites and those that are complete enemies and it brings them together, this verse says, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, some have looked at the beginning of verse 16 where Paul says, receive Onesimus no longer as a slave. And they see this as a call for Philemon to free Onesimus. It brings up the issue of slavery and how the Bible deals with it. Let me ask you, and I don't want you to answer out loud, quiet, in your own hearts and minds. Is slavery ever justified? Are you sure? If you just answered no, then why does the Bible call Christians slaves of Jesus Christ? If slavery is always wrong, then why is it Jesus himself is described as a master and us as his slaves? Does the Bible describe slavery as sin? The Bible defines sin as lawlessness, and yet there is no law in the Old or New Testament that prohibits slavery. Now, the Bible does speak very sharply against kidnapping, or the older phrase, man-stealing. The darkest chapter of our country's history is the kidnapping and consequent mistreatment of those created in the image of God. The Bible in no way condones, supports, or in any way sanctions slavery in, in our country, nor does it approve the subsequent sin of racism. Racism belittles our fellow man, mocks the creator, and undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God hates it. But that is a different study for a different day. 
Why then is the Bible silent on this issue? Or I should say, why is Philemon silent on this issue? And I would tell you, it isn't. I've given you a handful of verses in your outline that give specific instruction to both slaves and masters that you can read on your own time. But in short, Scripture calls slaves to remain as slaves, 1 Corinthians 7. It calls them to humbly submit to their masters, 1 Peter 2. To obey them, Ephesians 6. To respect them, 1 Timothy 6. And to work as to the Lord in Colossians 3. Now with all of that being said about how the New Testament handles slavery, it does not take the institution of slavery head on. In fact, it doesn't take on any form of social or institutional evil. Because the Bible is not a book about social reform. It is not a book about political revolution. It is not a book that seeks to establish the best form of human government. It doesn't talk about a democracy or a republic. All it talks about is a theocracy where God will set up his kingdom. That's best. But it doesn't tell us to be trying to figure that out. That's not its point, I should say. Instead, the Bible promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ as the power of God for salvation. Jesus Christ works one soul at a time, converting one sinner at a time, and impacting one life at a time. And so Paul doesn't come to Philemon to decry slavery as an institution. Rather, he appeals to Philemon as an individual Christian who, having been changed by the grace of God, will have to wrestle with the implications of what this means for his relationship with this man, Onesimus. You get that? But it's not as simple as it seems. Because if, he, if Philemon releases Onesimus and forgives him and just, it's all good, then what would the rest of the slaves do? Huh, okay, I'm going to steal, I'm going to run away, and I'm going to come back as a Christian, and I think everything will be fine. That doesn't work so well. And if he releases Philemon, what happens to his testimony with his peers in the city of Colossae, the other men that own slaves? He would create some radical form of chaos in the community. This is a personal letter that addresses an individual issue that has an individual solution. And again, this is how the gospel works. It works in our world. It works in our families, in our friendships, in our spheres of influence. It calls us to address the matter in our own hearts so that we would be in right relationships with those in our lives. We are quick to see the problems out there. We'll turn on talk radio, watch the TV shows, and see the, the, the people analyze at nausea all the problems in our country. We'll, we'll decry Hollywood. We'll talk about Washington all along, just sitting there shaking our heads like, I wish they listened to me because we got a lot of problems. I could solve them. But too often, we're slow or even reticent to address the issues in our own hearts. And so Paul is here coming to one individual slave owner who has an issue with one individual slave and he says in verse 17 at the very heart of this letter, if then you, Philemon, regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. And I think the earth may very well have shaken under Philemon's feet as he felt the force of that statement. Receive Onesimus, welcome him, embrace him in the same way that you would receive your father in the faith. In the faith. Certainly that's not normal for us, right? Because when we're wounded, we want to make that person feel it a little bit. They're going to come back, maybe and apologize. We're going to make sure they feel our displeasure. 
we're going to hold back just a little bit because we want them to suffer just a little bit and show that we have a little form of control. We want them, as it were, to kiss the ring, grovel a little bit. They made me hurt. I want them to hurt. But Paul calls Philemon to respond the same way that the father did in Luke 15, who when his pig-stinking prodigal son returned home, he ran to him and he kissed him and he threw his arms around him and he welcomed him home forgiven and completely restored. What pain is in your past? What hurt are you holding on to? This is not a message for somebody else. This message is for you. You who are tightly holding on to that offense. You who are unwilling to forgive. My friends, grace unites. It takes those who have been separated by sin and are in a broken relationship and it brings them together in Jesus Christ and unites them as one. So the watching world looks and says there's something different and Christ is honored because we live under his grace. And it changes everything. That takes us to point number five. Grace comes at a high cost. Grace comes at a high cost. Look at verse 18. But if he has wronged you in any way, or if Onesimus owes you anything, Paul says, charge that to my account. The Greek there for wronged you is acted wickedly or injured you or caused loss. And we can assume that Onesimus had indeed wronged Philemon. And Paul puts no qualifier on this. Verse 18 is a broad sweeping statement. If he has wronged you in any way, could be financial, could be relational, could be intentional, could be unintentional, could have been public or private, could have been in the deep past, could have been just yesterday. The statement is unqualified. If there's any wrong that's been done, He says at the end of verse 18, and if he owes you anything, if there's any debt or any obligation, Paul says, put that on my balance sheet. It's like saying, I'm going to buy dinner for that table over there. Put that on my tab. I got this one. Transfer it on the ledger. Put it under my name. Now, Paul's in chains, thousand miles away. We assume that he has really bad penmanship because he often uses other people to write his letters. It's called amanuensis, you can take that one home, a shadow writer. And so here, look at your Bibles. At verse 19, he takes the pen into his own hand. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. This is not so much to authenticate um, his authorship as it is to offer a personal guarantee. This is his promissory note. It is his gentleman's handshake. He's saying, I will cover this debt. And then in a very gracious way, he calls out, Um, Philemon at the end of verse 19. Look at this little parenthetical statement. Not to mention Philemon. I don't want to bring this up right now, but I will. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. In just two verses, Philemon goes from creditor to debtor as he's now loaded on with a debt to Paul that he can never repay. And I think there's a beautiful picture of the gospel in these verses. Watch this. Philemon like God, has been wronged. Onesimus is the sinner who has run from God and now stands beneath a debt that he cannot pay in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul, like Jesus, offers to pay the price to bring about reconciliation. I think this is how God treated us. When we were his enemy, having rebelled against him, run from him with our fists in his face, he loved us and gave himself for us. 
And Paul is here offering a personal guarantee, right? He grabs the pen and he signs his name in ink. I will pay it. But Jesus from the cross also offered a personal guarantee. He signed his name with his own blood. He said, it is finished. I will pay it all. And from the cross, he wiped our ledger clean. Put that on my tab. I cover that. And so we celebrate the grace of God given to us in Christ. We bask in the freedom that we have in Christ, but grace isn't free. Grace comes at a high cost to us offered freely, and we love that. Praise God for it. It costs Jesus everything. And we have to take a moment here because the motivation for our forgiveness uh, for those who have offended us is bound up in this truth. For those in Christ, we have been forgiven much, haven't we? How then could we not offer forgiveness to others? How can we hold out? How can we look another sinner in the eyes and say, I will not forgive you? I, I, how can we think we're better than them? How can we hold a sin against them that God has already forgiven? These are tough questions. And forgiveness doesn't just happen. Forgiveness is a choice. One author said, forgiveness is not some pious hope, but is something gritty, rough-edged. It is an act of the will. C.S. Lewis said, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin that is left over after all allowances have been made. And seeing it in all its cruelty is nevertheless wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. How can that happen? How can you have reconciliation when, when it's been what seems irreconcilably torn apart? It can only happen for someone who's had their heart changed, who's experienced the grace of God, who's come to an end of themselves, reached out for help, and said, trust Christ for salvation, has received forgiveness. It's only somebody who knows that I've been forgiven of a great debt. How can you forgive a traitor, a backstabber, a liar, a cheater, a two-faced, a fair-weather friend? The only way is to look at Christ and see that he forgave you of a greater debt and therefore you extend the same forgiveness to others. Now if you would flip over to Colossians chapter 3, just a couple books. I want to read this and I want you to see it in your Bibles. Colossians 3 verse 12. It says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What size hammer does the Holy Spirit have out right now? James tells us, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You know what you need to do. May God give you the strength to do it. So, we've seen that grace transforms your life, that grace makes no demands, that grace sees God's plan in your difficulty, that grace unites, that grace comes at a high cost, and number six, grace cannot be contained. Grace cannot be contained. Look at verse 20. Paul says, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Three times in this letter, Paul uses the word heart. 
It's not the word uh, cardia that is used all over the New Testament, but the word splankna. I kind of like that. Splankna, only used five times outside this letter. It means guts or inward parts. It's, it's like the Hebrew saying uh, that the heart is the seat of your emotions. And this is super cool. And I'm stealing this from a preacher named Josiah Grauman who made this observation. Credit to him. But in verse 7, watch this. I'm going to wrap the whole letter up really quickly here. We're not done yet, but just summary. Verse 7, Paul says, The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, Philemon. In verse 12, he says, I am sending you Onesimus, my very heart. And here in verse 20, he says, Philemon, refresh my heart. So here it is, the entire letter in miniature. Philemon, you refresh the hearts of the saints. I sent you my heart. Refresh my heart. You refresh the hearts of the saint. I send you Onesimus. Refresh my heart by receiving him. That's the call. That's the call. Accept him back. Be reconciled to him. And while we don't know how Philemon will respond, somehow Paul does. Look at verse 21. I have confidence in your obedience. I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. How does Paul know what Philemon's going to do? Look up. It's because he knows this man. It's because he knows that grace has transformed his heart. It's because he knows that grace cannot be contained. It's because he knows that more is coming. Because when Christ changes your heart, everything is different. And you cannot hold on to sin and hold on to Christ at the same time. You have to let go and let God transform you to become more like him. I have confidence in you. The result is incredibly predictable because that's how Christians live. It's a tall order, but I know that you're going to do more. Can I illustrate this? Mad scientist in my lab back here. Okay. I want to illustrate this and say that this is your life, and there are certainly times in your life, my life, where somebody has done something that's been really evil towards us. Somebody's hurt us. You've been offended. Um, somebody's caused pain, right? Somebody has wounded you in ways that are just difficult. And our response typically is to, is to get bound up in that and to get angry and to get bitter. And our response is to, is to be um, hateful and to just want to cut that person off. And our heart over time gets filled with the blackness of sin, so much so that we are overflowing with just negativity and flesh in our hearts. Maybe this defines some of you today. You have not given your life to Christ and you're just filled with your sin, filled with guilt and shame. For a lot of Christians, though, we function this way because we've forgotten the grace of God and we're not living in light of that. But in that moment, when you begin to allow God's grace to pour over your life, it begins to change things. And you'll notice it doesn't change things all at once, does it? You're in your word, you're coming to church, you're seeking to forgive, you're seeking to do the right things, and slowly but surely, things begin to change in your heart. God begins to change you, and he begins to replace all the bitterness and the bile and the anger and all the resentment. He begins to take those things from your heart and to transform you by the power of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he leaves you completely full of Christ and empty of your sin. And you have the power in you because Christ is in you to live in a way that's different. To forgive those wrongs. 
to cast them aside. And like I said, it is not an easy thing. It doesn't happen all at once, but the grace of God in you is sufficient to change you from the inside out. Grace changes everything. What a sweet picture. Forgiveness, my friends, is a choice. And the choice is yours. Just like Paul brought an individual decision to Philemon, God brings an individual choice into your life. One author said the alternative to forgiveness is a ceaseless process of hurt, bitterness, anger, resentment, and in the end, self-destruction. And this takes us to our final point. We're out of time, so let me hit this really briefly. I don't want to leave it out because Paul didn't, but number seven, grace thrives in community. Grace thrives in community. In verse 22, Paul says, I'm coming. In verses 23 and 24, he calls out five men, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, who he calls his fellow workers. Don't forget Timothy in verse one. Here's Paul, and he's not a one-man show. He's not. He's not an egotistical hero of the story. He's not a leader looking for pats on the back, pats on the back and attaboys. He's part of a team functioning in community alongside others who have given their lives to Christ. And here's Paul. He's an old man, and he's running with the bucks, right? He's an old man in prison, and he's still driving the pace. He's right in there with, this, with these young men, firing them up and encouraging them, living an example, because grace thrives in community. Look at that one name in there, the name Mark. I'm not expecting this. This is John Mark. This is the one um, who was the cousin of Barnabas. He defected during Paul's first missionary journey. He created a rift between Paul and Barnabas. He's back. Why is he back? Because Paul understands that grace changes everything. He's been reconciled to this man, and he's a fellow partner with him. Why is it that in verse 2, Paul is reading this letter in front of the whole church? It's so that the entire church gathered together, looking at these two men, they're going to see the grace of God lived out in their lives. Paul's confident that grace will prevail, and grace thrives in community, because when you see forgiveness in others, it's inspiring. It's an example for us, too, to forgive others. And so Paul has done that, and we're confident that Philemon did that. And we have confidence this morning that that will happen too in your life. So we've seen that grace transforms your life, that grace makes no demands, that grace sees God's plan in your difficulty, that grace unites, that grace comes at a high cost, that grace cannot be contained, and that grace thrives in community. My friends, grace changes everything. And I just one final question of application. It's not in the text. I'm just wondering for you, who do you need to be most like today? Paul's not saying be like one of these three men. I'm saying for application, maybe this will fit for you. Are you to be like Paul, who sees an issue in somebody else and knows that they need to go and help them deal with it as a brother or sister in Christ? Or maybe like an Onesimus, who needs to go and seek out somebody that you've offended and ask for forgiveness? Or maybe like Philemon, who needs to forgive someone who has offended you. May the Lord impress these truths on our hearts and help us, like these men, to live in light of his grace. And I love the way that Paul ends this letter, and so I'll end the sermon the same way. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a fitting end. Father, thank you so much for your very good word. Thank you that when we were lost in our sin and we were uh, embittered against you, you did not leave us there. 
But through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and love for us, you drew us back and made us sons and daughters. And we are so thankful. And we know that you've changed our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that in each individual circumstance of our lives that you would give us your grace, give us your strength that we might live in ways that honor you this week. Impress these truths into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.